The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. I was really surprised because of biographies I'd read and just the, the expectations I had going into suffering that God would give me His presence. But for two years, I did not have that sense of presence. Those two years were spent in a Turkish prison where Andrew Brunson languished without much hope. Welcome to First Person, where we'll hear Andrew tell, in his own words, what it was like to suffer unjustly for his faith. I'm Wayne Shepherd. This interview and many more are available online at firstpersoninterview.com, or perhaps an even easier way to listen is to use our free smartphone or tablet app available in your app store. With it, you can download programs and take them with you on the go. While you're online, take time to visit the new website for the Far East Broadcasting Company. It's febc.org. Exploring the stories you'll find there, you'll gain a new perspective on just how effective radio and Internet programs can be in reaching people with the gospel message. Many FEBC listeners suffer for their faith, and we can learn how to pray for them. Go to febc.org. Andrew Brunson had served Christ in Turkey for many years when he and his wife Noreen were arrested. Noreen was soon released, but Andrew spent an agonizing two years in prison before his release in 2018. When we spoke online recently, I asked Andrew how he's doing at this point in his life after his ordeal. Yeah, so the first thing is I'm uh, everything is wonderful in the sense that I'm free, and I'm back with my family, and that's what I thought I had uh, lost. It was the deepest sense of loss I had in prison was thinking I would uh, be separated from them. Uh, so that's very good, and there has been a healing process, although a lot of that had already started, and a lot had taken place actually during the second year in prison when God began to rebuild me after a period of real brokenness. Also, we, we have a call to the Muslim world. We had that years ago, and that is still in our heart. And uh, years ago, God had given, He had spoken to me and, and said, prepare for harvest. This is what we were doing in Turkey. Uh, for years, is trying to prepare. What can we do to prepare for a great move of God, a powerful move of God? And I still think that's an assignment we have, which is to prepare for harvest in the Muslim world. So that's what we're doing. Hmm. After what you've been through, you still want to serve God in that way. That That's no small thing. Oh, more than ever. <laughs> I think uh, prison, one of the things that I thought that i could be there the rest of my life and mm. die in prison because the Turkish government wanted three life sentences for me. And so it was a real threat. And that clarifies a lot of things. And one of the things, uh, especially uh, that came out of my prison time, is the conditions I was in uh, really forced me. Well, the, the isolation and the fear that I had and the sense of hopelessness, they really pushed me to run after God in a in a different way. I mean, I've loved him for years, obviously, but I had to run after him and just cling to him with everything I had just as a matter of personal survival. Hmm. And so, uh, in fact, when, when I'm not in those uh, conditions, those conditions forced me in a way uh, to, uh, to run after him in a, in, in a different way. 
And when I'm not in those conditions, then I tend to slide. This is sort of the natural thing that yeah. our love for God doesn't just increase naturally. It, it tends to decrease. And I think now with, you know, these issues, the coronavirus uh, uh, that's happening, uh, it's the same kind of situation. It's, it's forcing us as, as, the, as the foundations of the things that we trust in are shaken. It really forces us to, uh, to turn to God and run after him in a different way. Hmm. So I understand that you're starting a ministry called Wave Starters. Tell me about that. Yeah, in 2007, uh, I began to pray in a different way, uh, better than I knew. I began to pray, Father God, draw me so close to your heart that you will be able to trust me with the authority to start waves. And so this was uh, actually a pursuit of intimacy, a pursuit of God's heart. And as we pursued his heart, in, in a way, it set us up to receive assignments from us. It positioned us so that he could give us assignments. 2009, he spoke to me, prepare for harvest. And we tried to do that, just to hear from him, how do we prepare for a move of God in Turkey, which is the largest unevangelized country in the world. You know, very few cities have churches. Most cities don't have a church, and most churches have never met a Christian in their lives. Hmm. Uh, so then when we were arrested in 2016, I thought, wait, this isn't possible. We have an assignment to prepare for harvest. Did I do something wrong, God? Did I disqualify myself in some way? And then as I, as I uh, just waited in prison, I began to see that, that actually the prison was part of my assignment. Those two years of imprisonment, God was using it to start a prayer movement that just went around the world. And although that prayer obviously helped me a great deal, I was being used as a magnet for prayer into that region. And God's going to use that prayer to change that region, to change Turkey and the area around it. Mm. And so, I, I came to realize that that, that was uh, part of my assignment to prepare for harvest. And uh, I look back to that prayer in 2007, uh, just trying to position myself uh, before God's heart, seeking intimacy with Him. And I think that set us up uh, for that prison assignment. And then God started a wave. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, when we say wave starters, that's, that's the idea behind it, is that when we position ourselves before God's heart, then He can give us assignments, and even difficult assignments. And this is the assignment we have now, is to continue to prepare for harvest in the Muslim world, and we want to see God start waves where there are no waves. Well, we'll put a link to Wave Starters in our program notes for first person so our listeners can follow up and follow with you and support you in uh, God's call on your life. It's very exciting to hear that part of what's going on, Andrew. I was very intrigued when you opened your book with the story of God uh, touching your heart with the words, time to come home. Can you talk about that for a moment? You were in Turkey at the time. You'd been in Turkey for a number of years, correct? Yes, we'd been there 23 years at the time. So we spent 25 years total. 23 were by choice, two were uh, by force. Uh, so 25 total. Uh, and one morning, I just, uh, the thought came to my mind out of the blue, uh, it's time to come home. And it actually shook me because, uh, and confused me. I thought, well, I am home. I'm here in Turkey. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. God has called us here. But that thought kept coming again and again, flashing into my mind, it's time to come home. And I thought, well, maybe God is telling me it's time to go to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we were arrested something two or three days after I started having these uh, flashing thoughts come into my mind. 
And and I realized that God was preparing me uh, to leave this ministry that we had invested so much in and letting me know that he was involved in this. This didn't take him by surprise. And then as my imprisonment extended, uh, it just dragged on and on. I just held on to that. And I said to God many times, you said it's time to come home. I didn't make that up. It would never have occurred to me to think that thought. And so, Lord, you must you must complete this because I'm unable to. And I held on to that as a, in a sense, a promise from God that he would take me home someday. Mm-hmm. Your wife and partner in all of this, who suffered greatly herself as Noreen, did you tell her about this this feeling from God that it was time to go home? I didn't tell her at, uh, until we were arrested. And the reason is because I was unsure what this meant for me. And I was preparing myself. As I said, I thought I was home already. So I started to think maybe God was saying it was time for me to go home to heaven. And so I was preparing my heart uh, just to be in a in a mode of submission to whatever that meant, I wanted to cooperate with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I didn't tell her, but when we were arrested, then I said, Noreen, I think I think that I know what's happening here, that God actually, this, this thought, he kept giving me this thought. So, um, I did tell her eventually. Hmm. Talk about those early days after the arrest. Uh, I know at first you and Noreen were together, and then she was able to visit you sometimes, and then not often. What what was what were those days like? Yeah, so we were together for thirteen days. We were held together in a detention center. Then she was released, and they kept me and transferred me uh, that night that she was released. They transferred me in the middle of the night to a different place. I was uh, held in solitary there for uh, fifty days, and that was that was very difficult. It was just me and and a bed for at the beginning and. Just a sense of fear and helplessness and hopelessness uh, was overwhelming to me. And uh, it really started to break then. Uh, I think when they want to break people, they, um, they do it through isolation and through sleep deprivation. And I had both of those. <laughs> so, uh, I began to break. Uh, then I was transferred to a high-security prison. And I went from isolation to the opposite. Uh, I was put in a cell built for eight people, but there were eventually over 20 of us in that cell. And uh, that was a very intense uh, environment for me because everyone, well, it's very crowded for one, and uh, we never leave the cell. It's 24-7, and the, uh, there are no common areas for prisoners. We were kept uh, in that cell all the time, had all our meals there. And so, it was very crowded, and everyone there was a very strong Muslim. I was the only Christian. And so, the sense of isolation, um, even though I was in a very crowded environment, I felt very, very alone. Uh, Not only isolated by culture and language and life experience, nationality, but especially by my faith. And this is one of the, uh, was one of the most difficult things is uh, the I longed often to have just another Christian who would pray with me, who could encourage me, who could correct me when I was thinking wrong thoughts. Uh, But I didn't have that, and that went on for two years. We'll continue this first-person conversation with Andrew Brunson. His book is titled, God's Hostage. We don't ask God to put an end to these challenging days, because we are seeing so many people turn to the Lord now. 
and for that, we're very grateful. When people are anxious, sick, or confused, they have a deep need that only God can meet. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company. Until all have heard. We're talking with Andrew Brunson, who tells his story in the book, God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. Andrew was released in October of 2018 after serving two years, unjustly, we might add, in a Turkish prison. I've heard you say there was a human story here and a God story here, and the human story is filled with just frustration and uh, tragedy and, and separation and grief. And, and what is the God story in this, Andrew? Yeah, the human story also has a lot of political intrigue and, you know, different uh, things that my wife was trying to to get going, uh, political figures involved, uh, economic sanctions. So there was all of that going on. I say that's a human story. Then the God story is that the visible side was a human story, but God was doing something behind the scenes, which was really the more real part of it, we could say, the most important part of it. I think that he was... Basically, he took a situation that was intended to harm me and turned it around uh, and used it for good. So, in a sense, he redeemed it. I I say the Turkish government stole two years of my life, but God was redeeming it. But that doesn't make it any easier for you to go through what you went through. I mean, you endured so much. And again, in in the book, you mentioned that when you realized you couldn't fight for your freedom, you had to fight for your very faith. Yeah, I can say all of this in hindsight more easily because I've had time to process and evaluate it when I was going through it. No, I was I was uh, desperate. I was broken. I became suicidal. Uh, I lost uh, 50 pounds in the first few months and was really broken. There was a, a rebuilding process that had to take place. As you mentioned, I, I came to a point where around the end of the first year where I I realized there was very little I could do to fight for my freedom, but my relationship with God was so strained at that time, so suffocated by all my questions and doubts, I just saw that I I was slipping uh, in that. I I made a decision to fight for my relationship with God, and this was really a turning point. I mean, before that, I had been focused the entire time on my relationship with God, but I made a, a decision that whatever He did or didn't do, and I said that to him, whatever, God, whatever you do or don't do, I will follow you. Whether you give me your presence or not, I'll follow you. Whether you speak to me or not, I will follow you. Whether you deliver me or not. Uh, because what had really broken me was the expectation that I would have a sense of God's presence, a sense of strength and of joy, even in the midst of difficulty. And I was really surprised because of biographies I'd read and just the the expectations I had going into suffering, that God would give me His presence. But for two years, I did not have that sense of presence. And this goes back to, I mentioned before that in 2007, I began to run after God's heart (laughs) and after His presence. And here I was in my most difficult time, desperate situation, and I felt abandoned by God. Mm -hmm. Now, He didn't abandon me, but he did remove a sense of his presence. Mm. And so, the determination on my side was finally, 
to overcome this, the offense uh, I had toward God in my heart and say, I am going to follow you. And I, I came to realize that um, I had a lot of questions for God, oh, gosh, you, know, yeah. I, you know, about his love and his loyalty, his faithfulness. And I came to realize that God had questions for me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, Andrew, are you going to love me? Andrew, are you going to be faithful to me, even when you don't feel my presence? So, in a sense, I say God's love and faithfulness are never being put to the test. They're they're constant. It was my faithfulness and my love that were being put to the test. I know Noreen was able to visit you from time to time. Did you have any sense of uh, of how she and your family were doing? Uh, could they communicate those details to you? And was she uh, aware of how deep your struggle was? Uh, yes, she was aware. Uh, it varied according to um, the prison they kept me in. There were different rules in different places. Uh, eventually, she was allowed to visit me regularly once a week. Uh, in one prison, it was 35 minutes, and that's meeting through you know, reinforced glass and bars and uh, speaking on telephones. And the other prison, it felt like heaven to me. It was a maximum security prison, but they allowed us a one-hour visit uh, every week and same kind of setup. Uh, once every two months, we were allowed to uh, have physical contact for that period of time. So uh, she was the one who brought hope to me and spoke uh, in a sense, she was pastoring me. She was the only one who could visit me uh, as a family member because the rest of my family was uh, in the States and no one else was allowed to visit me. And so she uh, stayed at personal risk, at risk to herself. People told her to leave Turkey, but she stayed because she, she was the only one who could, who could visit me and she was my lifeline. And so she put, placed herself at risk uh, to to basically be there for me. And she did. She she brought me hope. She had to come in. It was very it was a great wait for her because I was falling apart, especially mm-hmm. in my first year. She must have been very and concerned for you. She was. For your she very was. life, I mean. Uh, yes. And I mean I I was suicidal at times and I, I had really broken. And she had to had that weight of coming into that prison and trying to think, what can I bring Andrew? What can I speak to him that will give him life and hope? And she did that. Uh, she was, to me, she was uh, very heroic. And uh, I have an image of her. She would come to this prison complex. It's a very intimidating place, uh, all kinds of walls and guards and razor wire. And she'd go through checkpoint after checkpoint and have her iris scan two different times, go through uh, you know, several metal detectors, all kinds of things. And finally, she gets to, to to see me. And it's just such an intimidating thing and, and a shameful thing. We're being accused of being terrorists and being treated that way. But when she came to the prison, she would very consciously say, I'm a daughter of the king, and I'm here to visit a son of the king. <laughs> and she would literally lift her head up high and walk in. And I, I love that image of her. Mm. That's a great picture. It really is. When did the release come, and did you have any sense that it was coming, or was it sudden? Uh, I was uh, released after two years uh, at my fourth trial session. The trial sessions are separated by, they can be three months apart, six months apart. They can just go on and on. Uh, at my fourth session, 
they convicted me of uh, terror crimes and sentenced me to prison and then released me suddenly and told me I could leave. So it was a complete shock. It was really a, a roller coaster emotionally that day because uh, when I when I went to the court that day, I had two bags packed, one, one uh, to remain in prison and one to to leave the country. Hmm. I didn't know what would happen, and actually nobody did. Uh, it was completely in the hands of the Turkish president. The, it, there was a judicial process, but w- it was really a show. Yeah, yeah. And so to go from being convicted as a terrorist and then sentenced to prison, I thought, this is it. I'm going back in spite of all the prayer, in spite of all the political pressure. I'm going back to prison. And then suddenly released and within a day hmm. uh, at the White House. I mean, that's yeah. a, a Joseph-type type story from the dungeon to, to Pharaoh's you know, throne room. It's such a powerful story, and listeners will have to catch up with the rest of it in your book, God's Hostage. But just my last question— um, forgiveness. Um, I mean, it has to be difficult, but we know that God calls us to forgive. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, there were a lot of uh, false witnesses against me. Some of them were people who had been in our church, people I had sacrificed for and loved and served, uh, who for various reasons testified against me. I did not have a very difficult time forgiving them, actually, because I thought they're opportunists or they're being used and Normally, this testimony would never be accepted in a court of law. The more difficult thing was forgiving the political leaders who were behind this, because they, they were using me. But I did. It's something I have to do as a believer, because uh, Jesus requires it. And if, if I don't forgive, then it, I end up in bondage and full of bitterness. So, I, I did this. I, I forgive them, but I had to stand in that forgiveness. So the feelings can still be there, and I have to come back and say, no, I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive and release them and leave it up to God and let God deal with them. But I'm not going to, to hold this in my heart. And I was able to do this in court. I realized uh, after time in court that this was really a kangaroo court. It was a show court, so it didn't matter how well I defended myself. They didn't care. Uh, and so I thought, I'm, I'm going to use this time to present a witness as a Christian. How does a Christian deal with persecution? So I tried to present the gospel, and one of the things was to get up in court and by name forgive everybody who had testified against me. Wow. I, I tell people, whatever your situation is, and every one of us is going to be tested, every one of us is going to go through dark times, through valleys where we, we don't sense God's presence. And we do have a choice. We turn our face toward Him or away from Him. And if we turn toward Him, it positions us then to receive grace and to receive strength. And so, in the darkness, we need to lean on Him. Andrew Brunson's story is one of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. His book, Honestly Telling His Story Just As He Has Done Today, is titled God's Hostage, and we'll provide a link to the book at firstpersoninterview.com. We know from Andrew's story and many others just how difficult it can be when people suffer for Christ around the world. Birthed in China 75 years ago, the Far East Broadcasting Company has been reaching into many countries where the gospel message is not a welcomed one, and yet listeners become believers and part of the church. Learn more when you visit febc.org. That's FEBC, until all have heard. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.